so I'm proud of what we've done. I think, I think we've gotten it right on all the key issues and I think these liberal states have gotten it wrong. And why are they getting it wrong? Uh, I think it all goes back to ideology. I think it goes back to this woke mind virus that's infected the left and all these other institutions. I mean, think about the way they have governed these states. They put things like woke ideology over the tried and true principles that President Reagan stand for and that where most Americans believe in. They do coddle the criminals and put the rights of the criminals over the safety of the public and the rights of victims. They impose unreasonable burdens on their own taxpayers to finance wasteful programs and wasteful levels of spending and they subordinate in terms of education the best interests of parents and students to partisan interest groups like school unions and of course they still in many respects claim to medical authoritarianism where some of these universities here are still forcing these booster shots on these college students that is wrong and there's no justification for it And so it's ideology run amok. That's why the quality of life has declined in places like San Francisco and New York City and, and Philadelphia and Chicago. It's all rooted in that. And that woke ideology rejects the core foundational principles that have made this country great. So in Florida, we say very clearly, uh, we will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. Welcome to another episode of Wetwired. I'm Julian Paul Butt. I'm Sean Andes. We're back this week with the second part of our Florida coverage. We're continuing the story of Ron DeSantis' War on Woke. Last time, Ron, with only his motley crew of legislators and angry moms, took on books, teachers unions, and Mickey Mouse. In this thrilling conclusion, we'll find out how Florida became the battleground for the Republican Party's culture wars and Ron DeSantis' swamp boat propelling him to the White House. Vamping. Totally For overwritten. <laughs> First, there's been a new development in the fight between DeSantis and Disney. We last left off talking about the not-really-that-woke Disney losing their special half-century-long governmental status. Apparently, the corporate kingdom had another trick up their sleeve. A really funny trick. <laughs> 19 days before DeSantis signed the bill, the former Disney board that was about that was on its going to be on its way out because of DeSantis's legislation and ran the the Disney district and they signed agreements with Disney the corporation that made the board almost powerless. They made themselves powerless and handed all of their authority back to Disney the corporation. <laughs> So the new board, which was the same body, effectively, but had all of its members replaced by DeSantis appointees, discovered this when they sat down to start their new roles. <laughs> In a shot at Ron's reference to the corporate kingdom, this Declaration of Restrictive Covenants was set using the, quote, rule against perpetuities, which will continue until 21 years after the death of the last survivor of the descendants of King Charles III. 
Last time, Ron said, fuck me, fuck you. And Disney replied, no, 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 no. Fuck you first, sir. <laughs> they they did it out in the open, too. They, Ron is trying to paint it like this was in the shadow of the night. No, these were public hearings. They were public hearings, and they, they followed all the rules and announced it. Yeah, Florida has this thing called the, uh, the Sunshine Law, the Sunshine Act, which requires all this proper notification for these types of proceedings. And Disney did every single bit of it. <laughs> Ron is going against a corporation that is known for being litigious. And they didn't really pipe up when he said that he was going to take away their, their status. And I think it's pretty clear why they didn't say much after he made his move. Yeah, litigious is an understatement as far as Disney. And look how they've screwed over uh employees and creators over the years, the way they've robbed people of their intellectual property. Yeah, they, they definitely have a history. Ron, Ron should have known better. This is not presidential material. <laughs> they, they go after children's daycares uh, right. for, for having exactly. Disney paintings up. <laughs> well, all right. Let's find out where all this started. This war on wokeness didn't emerge from the ether. Neither did Ron. DeSantis and these culture wars are part of this wave of populism that started when Barack Obama took office, which made a lot of people really angry. Why were they angry, Julian? <laughs> could, could have been anything. It could have been anything. I think it might have been Obama's tan suits, perhaps. Did, it, it, maybe they just didn't like the cut of his jib. <laughs> And those years seem like a lifetime ago. That's when people cried. Uh, they. That's when people cried to the Academy Award winning Up, and we were dancing to Party in the USA and Poker Face. We still believed in hope and change. Some Sean. of us, many many people <laughs> believed in hope and change. I, I sort of believed in hope and change too. Some I was of us, I was believed took. in the hopey changey thing. <laughs> bamboozled it was in <laughs> once again once again i i just got fleeced by these tricky politicians it was in 2009 when we caught our first glimpses of right-wing activists dressed in revolutionary american costumes and dangling tea bag tea bags suspended from their little tricorn hats the tea party arrived at the shores of america this was largely astroturfed, but it prop it was propped up by billionaires, including the Koch brothers, through advocacy groups such as Americans for Prosperity. This is from a 2010 article in The Guardian. Americans for Prosperity is one of several groups established by the Koch brothers. They set up the Cato Institute, the first free market think tank in the United States. They also founded the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, which is very pomplessly uh, spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, Santra, <laughs> which now fills the role once played by the economics department at Chicago University as the originator of extreme neoliberal ideas. 14 of the 23 regulations that George W. Bush put on his hit list were, according to the Wall Street Journal, first suggested by academics working, <laughs> working, <laughs> Mercatus. <laughs> 14 of the 23 regulations that George W. Bush put on his hit list were, according to the Wall Street Journal, first suggested by academics working at the Mercatus Center. Americans for Prosperity wrote 
the Tea Party talking points and designed its messaging. This wasn't just just a bunch of yokels coming out of the woods and suddenly having just the right consistent talking points across the United States. This is the same kind of playbook that we see with Moms for Liberty. It's exactly the same thing. It's the same it's the same strategy completely. We we see moms showing up uh, to these school boards with lists of books that surprisingly are the exact same lists across the United States. Which of these moms actually has read these books and has any idea what's inside <laughs> them? No, none of the, yeah, none of the, the people showing up and complaining about these things knows anything about these books. But like you said, they the have books a, they, aren't even in the libraries they're complaining about. Right. They, they, they've never even been in those libraries, but they have this list and then they have individual talking points regarding each of these texts and why it should be banned. It's not to say that that isn't, I mean, that's obviously an effective strategy. It works. You know, it's got all of us going. We're talking about it. And it's also managed to get a lot of books banned from public libraries and basically just restrict kids from seeing a lot of things that would they would have otherwise seen. That's the part that really gets me is, you know, when I was a kid, I read whatever I could get my hands on. I read all kinds of things. And, you know, I probably read stuff that some people would have had a problem with. But that was a, that was just a thing. My, my mom would do laundry at this laundromat and I'd go next door to this used bookstore. I'd have a couple of dollars on me and I'd buy, I'd find all these books. And, you know, I, I, of course, I bought a bunch of science fiction type stuff and some fantasy novels and then just some random things that, you know, where I liked the cover. And I remember this <laughs> yeah. one particular book that I got when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 years old. And it turned out to be this just absolute sort of like beefcake novel, like throwaway pulp novel about this guy's love affair and how they like went to Fire Island and there was a bunch of gay sex. And I like I was like I said I was like maybe 12 years old when I read that book. <laughs> that stuff doesn't do to children what people think it does to children. That wasn't that wasn't shocking or anything like that. It was just like, "Oh, this is what's happening in this book." This is what's being written about. The only, about the only issue that comes up with kids and literature is that, I don't know, just speaking from my own experience, you don't necessarily know what's real, like what actually happened, not just in essence factually, but like what events actually occurred. You miss nuances of things and you don't necessarily know the difference between a story being told in general and actual events that took place. And perhaps out of the context of, of a classroom, there's the possibility that the context for literature might be lost, where you, you might be be reading uh, some kind of a novel that's making a political point and not really understand some of the background behind when the author existed or uh, what was happening in the world at that time that's lost in the classroom when uh, from a teacher who actually knows about the book and is doing some kind of a lesson plan about it. A book doesn't necessarily have to meet some criteria of being literature. That's really what I'm getting at is there, there's plenty of people who make those arguments and I, I'm never really, I'm not that susceptible to them. They don't really, I don't really care that much about whether or not something qualifies as art to save it from the ban list. It's the idea of this oversight in the first place. The kind of books that they're that they're banning, famously the one that that is picked up in in every news article, is the one about the two penguins in in the I want to say San Diego Zoo, 
one of those zoos that are they it is actually about real penguins in the zoo that effectively raised uh a a, a chick up and and they were the same sex i mean what are you some kind of groomer <laughs> it, it's it's not like it's a graphic novel where one of the penguins is bending the other over <laughs> like, like full penetration and like genitalia scenes but pulling pulling out a rubber flipper and I, I don't know if you'd say fisting but maybe flippering the other <laughs> flippering the other penguin <laughs> in front of the child <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of backdrop to the populism that that was starting up in part largely because of the response to large largely as a response to Obama taking office. This was also when the Tea Party gained a lot of seats. They peaked somewhere around 2010. They held the government hostage if you remember uh with a shutdown in 2013 so it wasn't it wasn't just people rabble rousing and entirely toothless this this was this was a group that was getting elected and showing up to congress they represented a split in the party beyond just another caucus it actually drove dozens of underdog elections to victory and even introduced these aggressive political tactics to Congress, which is usually a stale C-SPAN lecture. People on the, on, the, on the younger end of our listeners probably do not remember how big these rallies were. And, and they were ridiculous. We're used to it now, unfortunately, because everybody remembers J6 and... We've seen the photos of all we've seen photos and video of all these Trump rallies and the kind of costumes that people put on now. But the Tea Party rallies were the first time people really started doing that. It was the first time you'd have a whole crowd together and everybody's in these elaborate costumes, all of this wild, you know, like ultra patriotic type stuff. It's like when Apollo Creed comes out in Rocky, you know, like that's it's, <laughs> it's that kind of outfit. Everything's an American flag. Suits made out of American flag. Jackets made out of American flag. Hats made out of American flag. And then all the revolutionary <laughs> costumes and the 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 misspelled signs. If a, if a word had more than three syllables, there were at least two misspellings in it. <laughs> and they did not go away either just because they were gone doesn't mean they were gone in fact most of those original tea party caucus uh, uh representatives and senators are still around or in some form or another a lot of them are actually still in office it and so the tea party gets absorbed into the right edge of the republican party and really just becomes the republican party after a while and the, even though the name gets completely dropped by the end of Obama's, what, second term? Pretty much. Well, uh, around, around I would say, 2012, 2014, it was really fading out. Yeah. So, and by 2016, it was pretty much gone. But the people were still there. Trump even explained to a reporter, Tim Alberta, quote, the Tea Party still exists, except now it's called Make America Great Again. It really transformed itself pretty quickly into the populist wing. And this is another example of of where it went 
This is from Jeff Kava Service in the Washington Post. The Tea Party, though, was something new. It departed from the cyclical pattern of previous conservative movements. The 87 Republicans swept into the House by the Tea Party wave in 2010 mostly came from gerrymandered conservative districts, so they had no need to moderate to win over Democratic and independent voters. Because the district had already been redrawn, so they didn't have to deal with anybody who might disagree with these more extreme positions. Yeah, it was already in their pocket. Their only threat to re-election was being outflanked from the right in a GOP primary. So here's the incentive to just keep moving to the right, because the only threat was from that direction, from somebody more zany than you. They're not dragging the Overton window to the right. They're sprinting with it. But while they could have had long political careers, comparatively few did. In 20, a 2016 profile of the Tea Party class observed that by that time, nearly a quarter were gone, many of them having, quote, decided after just five years that they've had enough of Congress, unquote. By 2018, nearly half had left the House, although some went on to the Senate or other political offices. Many of these legislators genuinely hated being in government, and so, unsurprisingly, were lousy at governing. They achieved some success in rolling back regulations and cutting spending, but unlike their predecessors, they proved unwilling or unable to engage in the hard work and unsatisfactory compromises that governing requires. Their mission to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act under President Barack Obama came to grief largely because they never came up with any substitute. And they still haven't. <laughs> yeah. The Tea Party cohort was notable mainly for its anti-institutionalism and breaking of norms. That is the, the part that really stood out to me in this article or this opinion piece from uh, Kava Service. This precedent-setting move that the Tea Party represents, all the, the entire time that Trump was president, that, that is what everybody on the left was talking about. They were all talking about how, you know, th this is just, this is such a, a an infringement on the norms of politics. Then, yeah. then they, you know, and they, they had that same criticism way back against Mitch McConnell when he wouldn't give a vote to, uh, what was his name? Uh, the guy who's the head of the Justice Department right now, Obama's pick for Supreme Court. Merrick Garland. Yeah. So that's exactly what would, that's exactly what happened with Merrick Garland and Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell was breaking the norms by not giving a vote. It began, you know, Obama had something like a year and change left in his presidency. And Mitch McConnell just was like, ah, we're just not going to vote on the guy. And then he'll never be the Supreme Court justice. And that's largely how we ended up where we are now. If it wasn't for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not never retiring. Then Mitch McConnell, to no one's surprise, when it came to Trump on with with his foot out the door, said, no, 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 no. It's no problem to to get a, yeah. a well, justice. In fact, in I'll give you two. With one foot out the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this this idea of of breaking of norms, this was a time period when that was happening in a large scale. And that was, you know, that was a major issue. Now we've kind of gotten used to it. You know, the, but this norms idea, I, I think we just got to let it go. I mean, we have to like norms. I mean, what can that matter to us anymore? I mean, we're just a whole nation of people that are like sticking to the form of how to sit at a table, even though there's no food at it. Pretty soon we're going to look look like a Turkish parliament where you can put black metal to the backdrop of it <laughs> with with all the fisty cuffs or just how they run parliament in the UK. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, the MP from Constableshire is a fucking prick. But that's what I'm saying, though, is that, like, what the fuck do the norms matter? Yeah. We're, we're so genteel that we've forgotten that they don't do anything to really protect anybody from anything. A bunch of people being overly polite, and that's why they haven't taken it up, taken advantage. But that's all it is. Yeah. And as soon as somebody comes along you re- that doesn't care about being polite, you realize how flimsy those norms were. Who is that Democrat in the in the primaries who who said, yeah, and Howard Dean that was lost, him, lost Dean. on the nomination. And I, I found it hard to believe at the time, but that is definitely part of this the norms thing. He wasn't even doing that in, in Congress or no, it was at a campaign some, event. It was at a campaign event. And yet still it, it broke the norms of respectability. He was too excited. <laughs> All right. Back to this article. Its principal accomplishment was the budget control act. That's the tea party's principal accomplishment. The Budget Control Act of 2011, with its spending caps and sequestrations, but its more symbolic action was the 2013 government shutdown. That negativity carried into the formation of the House Freedom Caucus in 2015. So the, the whole reason for this, me wanting to add, like, throw this piece into your script was it shows this continuity so clearly between the yeah. Tea Party, the Freedom Caucus, and then, you know, this article was written 15 years ago or something. So it, this article doesn't know what happened next. <laughs> the caucus was not much more ideologically conservative than other GOP factions, but it was distinctive for its determination to destroy bipartisan cooperation, deny Obama any legislative achievements or real legitimacy, and dethrone Boehner. You remember Boehner? Oh, he's the teary-eyed guy. Hey, nothing wrong with crying, but he was like a soap opera star. Who appeared too willing to cut deals with the Democrats. Yeah, Boehner was always wine drunk and crying up there at the podium. (laughs) (laughs) By 2015, Tea Party representatives in the U.S. House thought that things were still weren't quite right wing enough and didn't focus nearly enough on libertarian issues like small government and low taxes. You know, like core issues, like disbanding fire departments and <laughs> and road crews. Hey, let's bring it let's bring it back to the days when you put up a medallion of your local fire department and if they didn't have a medallion, they drove on by. That, those were the good days. You didn't pay your dues. <laughs> <laughs> This group of true believers, including the obstructionist heroes like Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and of course, Ron DeSantis. Come on, Ronnie. Banded together to form the Freedom Caucus. Far-right populism was at the heart of the Freedom Caucus, which dropped the Tea Party focus on small government and taxes pretty quickly after Trump's election. They, they dropped the, uh, the low taxes when it com- comes to individuals. But they definitely kept the low taxes when it comes to corporations and rich people. They love those. We no nobody was getting a four hundred dollar check in the mail in the mail anymore, like the good old Bush days. Like the Bush years. <laughs> God, how come the Bush years are like the good old days? <laughs> <laughs> 
when you pine for the days of war crimes right and, <laughs> and obliquely described terrorists <laughs> They rebranded as the MAGA cheerleader wing of the GOP. More than a few QAnon-type conspiracy theories made their way into the group, along with a hard lean into more culture wars than policy. That I mean, I I think you were there's some understatements in 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 there in in my part of this script. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I changed it to more than a few QAnon-type conspiracy theories because oh my gosh, like almost all of these people. It's dripping. I mean, it's just there's so many of them that have some sort of because remember, every single one of them buys into this sort of like FBI deep state conspiracy theories. Every single one of them buys into that. They might not go all in and into, you know, into Q type stuff, but they still like to a person will at least give lip service to deep state type conspiracy theories. And they almost all of them have given lip service to the election uh, election being stolen in 2020. The the more bland, but much more out in the open dog whistle for some sort of shadowy Jewish cabal is just bringing up Soros. That's all you have to do in in 2023. DeSantis has been doing that regularly. The uh, that's his big that's his big uh, argument against the attorney uh, or the the district attorney in, in New York that's indicting Trump. Uh, Bragg uh, is that Bragg is sort of like, you know, we mentioned this last time, you know, he's like four degrees away from George Soros, but they're four very big degrees. But still, he's Soros funded, (laughs) bought and paid for. This all brings us to 2018, when DeSantis won a very, very narrow victory to become governor. I think it was one of the narrowest victories for a gubernatorial race in history. It was it was by a hair. It it was Trump's endorsement that made it possible. It was instrumental to Ron's win. DeSantis was able to beat his better known and better funded Republican rival Adam Putnam in the primaries because Putnam wasn't crazy enough. Everyone knows my husband, Ron DeSantis, is endorsed by President Trump, but he's also an amazing dad. Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, (laughs) you're fired. I love that part. He's teaching Madison to talk. Make America great again. People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league. So good. I just thought you should know. Ron DeSantis for governor. It says conservative warrior for governor. (laughs) (laughs) That is a very real TV ad that played in 2018. Even though Trump won the state by a slim margin, 1.2% of the popular vote, in 2016, he was immensely popular with the conservative base. Like we said last time, we can't even call them conservatives, really. No. Right wing is more accurate. Reactionaries. Reactionaries. Ron didn't try to cater to the center in the general election, and he really didn't need to. And he didn't get the majority of moderates or independents either. He played to the right and got his reactionary base to show up for him by just enough margins and more than his liberal counterpart was able to get his base to show up. 
Well, there there were other things involved in Gillum, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he had a few things holding him back. The the whole point here is that DeSantis barely won this election in 2016. It was a photo finish. Or in 2018. DeSantis won by a 0.4% margin over uh, Andrew Gillum, who was then the, the mayor of Tallahassee. And that, that worked out to about 30,000 votes or a little bit over 30,000 votes. Gillum definitely had some things against them. So a lot of this stuff has caught up since then, too. Basically, during that time period, he there were there are a lot of suspicions about what he was doing with money. And it turned out in 2022 that Gillum ended up being indicted on 21 felony counts, including wire fraud, conspiracy and making false statements for allegedly diverting money raised during the campaign to a company controlled by one of his advisors. And then that advisor paid him out from that company. This is sounding so fucking familiar. Is there something happening now that's similar? (laughs) But before all of this came out, though, Gillum was endorsed by everybody, including Bernie. And the reason he He was endorsed... He had the full Democratic backing. He had the full... He had everybody's backing. And the reason that he was endorsed by everybody is he had all of the right policies. I mean, basically, you think of the progressive policy and he had it. Uh, in, in Florida, he was opposed to the stand your ground law, which is, if you remember Zimmerman and, you know, the oh, yeah. like, so he was opposed to the law that allows you to just shoot people because you're afraid. Uh, he was uh, he wanted to expand Medicaid. He wanted to get rid of Confederate monuments, increase education funding. Uh, restore voting rights to felons after they complete a prison sentence. Basically, he just couldn't get away from the molly and the meth because in 2018, <laughs> he was found. There was a 911 call to this hotel where, you know, because somebody had overdosed and he was one of a couple of people that were there where they found a, you know, they found a bunch of crystal meth and baggies. Andrew Gillum was having respiratory issues there was a gay hooker there. There was, I mean, it was just, it was a party. <laughs> <laughs> the point about all that is a lot of those stories about Gillum were already traveling around and he still almost beat DeSantis, you yeah. know, like, and it was because people did not want, a lot of people did not want DeSantis to win. It would have been a very different four years with uh, if Andrew Gillum had kept his shit together for a couple more weeks. <laughs> hey, man, he's just looking for a good time. And stopped all the wire fraud. Jesus. I mean, the alleged wire fraud, at least. The turning point for DeSantis really was the pandemic. DeSantis initially followed the federal lead and shut down the state, but it was short-lived. Th- no, no, hold shutdown- on. You, you say federal lead here. DeSantis initially followed Trump's lead. <laughs> That's an important distinction. He quickly stood out from the national crowd of other governors and other states by playing to his base against the mandates. He closed late a lot later than other major states and even smaller states, and he reopened way earlier. He was putting himself in a position to be contrasted with states like California, with Gavin Newsom. 
that's what he talked about incessantly is how how different it is in Florida, how it's uh, such a wonderful place and nothing's going wrong. No, they were off the charts for how many people died from COVID in Florida. Do you remember when the uh, the woman that worked for the Florida Department of Health had her had her house raided by a SWAT team because she was putting out the real data and not the doctored numbers? Oh, I don't recall that. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> That's how DeSantis handled the people who wanted to actually get those numbers out there. When we're talking about the pandemic, time seems to have this whole, to quote Doctor Who, wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing it's it's hard to keep track of what was happening when it was happening sean's shaking his head he he doesn't appreciate the doctor who reference no i don't uh, <laughs> but it, it was it just happened it's still happening but 2020 and 2021 seem like both 10 years and also the blink of an eye and also just five years ago, the the perception of time on this, I, I have to remind myself all the time. I, I It's been just long enough that I'm pretty well convinced that COVID never happened. <laughs> I don't remember it's any of this Mandela stuff. Effect. It's the Mandela effect. Let's go through some of the things that happened really quickly to have a framing of how this was breaking down in Florida. We're going to go through a quick timeline of how DeSantis handled COVID during the 2020s and all the way into 2023. On March 9th, 2020, he declares a state of emergency. April 1st, he declares a lockdown. April 29th, he moves to lift the lockdown. Now, when I say lift, it's not completely lifted, but to reduce the restrictions. July 26th, he issues an executive order opening schools in the fall. So that's coming up in a few months, but that's when he, he issues the order. And the Florida Teachers Union immediately sued over that. September 25th, he ends the lockdown. July 21st of 2021, he praises the vaccines and advocates for vaccinations. Yeah, he did a press conference with this, this World War II vet and where the guy gets a shot in front of him. He did not do what a lot of other governors and politicians did by making a big deal of himself being seen getting the shot. No, he used a, he used a, an old guinea pig. <laughs> In September 20, September 21st, 2021, he appoints an anti-mandate surgeon general. November 18, he signs a ban on vaccine mandates. December 13th, 2022, he calls for a grand jury to investigate the COVID vaccine, quote, wrongdoing. And January 17th of this year, he seeks to make the mandate bans permanent, meaning he had passed all sorts of bans on, on masks and other things like that. This year, he wants that to go away forever and to never see things like this again. I, you know, I was in Florida in January of 2022, and it was creepy. It was very creepy. Be going into public places, at a Walgreens or a restaurant or something like that, and seeing all the people without masks. I generally felt okay because I'd been, you know, I'd had, I guess, both of the initial round of sh of vaccines by then. I don't know if there was a booster out yet at that time. I don't remember, but I basically had everything that was available to me. So yeah. I felt like, okay, you know, like if I get this, I'm not going to die. I'm, I'll just get sick. 
And so it felt okay, but I was still going around with a mask at that point. You know, I was still, yeah. you know, w- washing my hands after every contact with things. I was being cautious. You you were you were part of the woke liberal coastal elites. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is the event and the series of actions and headlines that propelled him to the national stage. This is how he made a name for himself. With some of these, he was leading the news cycle. And in other cases, he was really just responding to it. You know, like people would start talking about something someplace. And then he, you know, they'd quickly move to be the first state to make it official. And, you know, so he was really, he wasn't always in front of the news cycle. He became the crusader against mandates. The anxiety and anger over restrictions really struck a chord with his base. DeSantis got a sense of this limelight pretty fast and started to move on to legislation and executive orders on a host of the most fiery culture war issues. These are the things that we were talking about in the previous episode. You can imagine his whole team sitting around saying, you know, like, hey, like this is a this is going to be a big topic. Like you should get out there out in front of this and and sponsor some legislation. You know, like they they should we should have something where you can sign something about this because everybody's talking about it. Well, lucky for him, the George Floyd protests spread across the U.S. in May and the movement raged through the summer of 2020. The right wing backlash swelled against the protests and BLM and calls to defund police. I remember here in Seattle where uh, we had the. The Chaz, as it was often called, uh, and it was a huge sight to see. It was an incredible spectacle as, you know, the Republic of Seattle, the People's Republic of Seattle would would absolutely have it. But this was happening in cities throughout the the U.S. at that time. I, I think the news focused on a few of the violent things that happened here and there for obvious reasons which were a tremendous minority of it. But what the news didn't get wrong was how much of these protests were happening and how much this was the zeitgeist of American politics at that time. Not to get sidetracked too much into talking about BLM protests, but there was a a huge mix-up in how the word violence got used by the media during those protests. Conservative media is definitely much more guilty of this than more left-leaning media. I mean, we don't only have a left media in this country. And the closest thing approximates it is probably Democracy Now! or, you know, something similar. They almost all got this one mixed up where they would use the word violence, but they would use it indiscriminately. They'd use it when people got hurt and they'd use it when property got damaged. So when they when a target got burned down, they called it an act of violence. And that, that, that really says a lot about how we see property in this country. Just without even thinking about it, just off the top of our heads, it, we're, we're going to call burning down a building violent because destroying yeah. property hurts. That's the way they, that's the way people think about this stuff. You know, they're, and, and so <laughs> yeah. they become very easily fixated on the destruction of property as being somehow equal or an, too extreme in relation to somebody's life being lost. The culture of America is a neoliberal wet dream. Well, we there's a lot of there's a lot of things we haven't really thought about 
that we just sort of absentmindedly will will say and sometimes say very passionately. And so we can talk yeah. about all this violence that took place during these protests without distinguishing violence in the in terms of property damage versus loss of life or injured humans. Yeah. When we talk about how many people were injured during these protests or killed, they, you know, compared to the property damage, these are just very different things. And as soon as you start distinguishing those, then, you know, you could say they were eventful without calling them violent. You could say there was a lot the of property destruction without calling it violent. You know, they, there's a lot of other words that can be used. What violence there was, the overwhelming majority of it was from the police on the protesters. Oh, yeah. Con I mean, and that's the thing. We don't, we don't, you, unless you get to some, you know, really kind of on the edge left-wing media outlet, you don't hear talk, so much talk about the violence inflicted by police to stop the protesters. Spraying, you know, using some sort of irritant, like like a gr like a grenade with an irritant in it, that is violent. It's it is less violent than lethal force, but it's still violent. Then we have the the very violent advertisements that we had at that time, like the Pepsi commercial, uh, where uh, the the woman walks up and uh, uh, and goes up and makes peace with the police. Uh, you remember, you remember that. Remember the, those good, heartwarming times. I probably saw them. Yeah. <laughs> right wing backlash swelled against the protests, BLM, and calls to defund police. Soon, the right wing narrative pivoted to attacking critical race theory. Thanks, Rufo. Yeah, right. He helped. It was a short distance from attacks on CRT to gender ideology, meaning the existence and human rights of LGBTQ plus people. Their existence is gender ideology, typically, if you if you drill down. Yeah, but it's also I, I think it's important there to note that nobody who is advocating for LGBTQ plus rights uses the term gender ideology. That's entirely invented by by reactionaries, by people who are yeah. terrified of not understanding what's going on in the world, that they had to come up with a label for it, which is where. These terms fit quite neatly. CRT became the perfect boogeyman to stand in for anything that has to do with uh, racial diversity of any kind. Oh, because, you know, it sounds academic, too. It, it, it has all the elements of, of a perfect right wing attack campaign. You know, it has the word critical, which is it, it sounds educated. And then it has the word race, which terrifies them. And then it has the word theory, which they don't understand. It's, it's the perfect combination. <laughs> By the following summer, 2021 school board meetings and city councils across the country were overrun with right-wing activists shouting at teachers and local officials. This backlash was largely from Moms for Liberty, which, started in, which also started in Florida. Moms for Liberty is an astroturf organization, exactly like the Tea Party, that got immediate support from the Republican establishment and conservative media. It then drafted the talking points and modeled the protest strategy. They even provided lists of books to an unprecedented wave of book challenges in the U.S. We got pretty deep into that in our somewhat recent episode, School Wars, which is worth Jules listening is always to after overstating this. it. I don't know if we've ever gotten deep into anything on this show. <laughs> We're a couple of philosophers, Sean. We get really you think deep you're all a philosopher. the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, stand up philosopher. 
Between the AstroTurf organization's reaction and the hot topics in conservative headlines, the national focus was on culture wars, specifically attacking diversity, banning books, and getting rid of rights for LGBTQ plus people. Again, Ron took up the mantle with a parade of bills and executive orders to lead the nation with the next big issue. Ron wanted to appear as the new sheriff in town. He, he said it several times in press conferences about Disney. I know. He wanted to, Both, he wanted to be the sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> you, you know, uh, he was more like Eddie Murphy in 48 in his imagination. That's not what the movie's called. It's called 48 Hours. Oh. Oh, man. <laughs> Keep going. That's why his supporters say, make America Florida. Ron won the governor's office very narrowly in 2018, but 2022 was a landslide. Florida handily delivered several new House representatives for a slim Republican majority in the midterms, and both state houses were taken by Republicans. Mandate! <laughs> uh, but when I wrote that in the book about the consequential, the fact is there was a big difference between me and, and my Democrat opponent 2018. I mean, you, you couldn't probably have been any different. And that would have been consequential no matter what. But then when we had the COVID pandemic, uh, you would have had a difference between how I guided Florida and a governor that would have done and replicated the California, Illinois models. And we've seen those models cause people to flee those states to Florida. So I don't think we would have been able to survive the way uh, those states handled it. And I think the way we did it, uh, you know, we're booming, Bill. We're the number one fastest growing state, leading in net in migration, record budget surplus, low taxes, uh, full employment. In fact, a point and a half below the national average. Uh, and I think it all goes back to, to that election. And now just as Republicans, what have we done with Florida? When I got elected, it was a one point race almost every election between governor and president. Uh, we were able to go from winning by 32,000 votes to winning by over 1.5 million votes sweeping Hispanics by over 60%, winning Miami-Dade County by double digits. But we have built in uh, an infrastructure for Republicans to where Florida, it should no longer be considered a swing state. I mean, this is a state that we have the strong advantage in now. He says it right there. We built in the infrastructure for Republicans. Yeah. Part of the Republican success was obviously DeSantis's new voting districts after the 2020 census. This is an article from ProPublica. Late last year, the state's Republican legislature had drawn congressional maps that largely kept districts intact, leaving the GOP with only a modest electoral advantage. DeSantis threw out the legislature's work and redrew Florida's congressional districts, making them far more favorable to Republicans. The plan was so aggressive that the Republican-controlled legislature balked and fought DeSantis for months. The governor overruled lawmakers and pushed his math through. This was a back and forth with him, with with vetoes and refusals from him until they gave him the whole thing. A meeting invite obtained by ProPublica shows that on January 5th, top DeSantis aides had a Florida redistricting kickoff call with out-of-state operatives. That sounds like a party. Those outside, <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's it's not it's not a party like a Democrat party with with the gay hookers. Or it might be. And Molly. Those outsiders had also been working with states across the country to help the Republican Party create a favorable election map. In the days after the call, the key GOP law 
the key GOP law firm working for DeSantis logged dozens of hours on the effort, invo invoices show. The firm has since billed the state more than $450,000 for its work on redistricting. His map eliminated half of Florida's black-dominated congressional districts, which typically vote Democrat. This is, this is more from that same article. One of the districts, held by Democrat Al Lawson, had been created by the Florida Supreme, Florida Supreme Court just seven years before. Stretching along a swath of North Florida, once dominated by tobacco and cotton plantations, it had drawn together black communities largely populated by the descendants of sharecroppers and slaves. DeSantis shattered it, breaking the district into four pieces. He then tucked each fragment away in a majority white, heavily rep Republican district. The problem is, you just gotta carve it up so it looks more Republican. That's right. Just keep that's working the, on it. That's the problem. Just keep, just keep, <laughs> keep working on it. The Democratic Party also threw him a bone or a whole satchel of favors, really, when they ran a low-rent candidate that already lost once before. They didn't fund the midterm election campaigns well either, and they didn't even have much of a strategy for the state. They basically handed over to handed it over to the Republicans that year. This is from an article in the Washington Post. National Democratic groups mostly looked past Florida in the 2022 midterms, with the governor's race failing to become a priority for the Democratic Governors Association and the Senate race failing to attract much attention from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and its affiliated outside groups. The DNC also left the state off a list of likely 2024 battleground states that received extra investments for 2022. The Orlando Sentinel was much more curt about it. The Florida Democratic Party came into the 2022 election cycle losing ground to Republican voters. By the summer, Republicans outnumbered Democrats for the first time in state history, 5.26 million to 4.96 million. Republicans also fielded candidates at the top of the ticket that excited their base voters, something Democrats failed to do with the nomination of Charlie Crist, a former Republican governor who already lost one bid for governor as a Democrat. This guy, I, I, like, I remember when I, when I saw who the Democrats were running for governor in Florida, and it was like, they obviously were just throwing it in. They were just like, nah, this isn't going to happen. We're not going to even make the effort. We're not going to even try to hold <laughs> ground here. This is, it wasn't even a race. I mean, they, they took a guy who was totally washed up, who'd switched parties like a decade earlier, and they tried to run him as some kind of like this centrist. But the problem with all of that was, is that the Democrats that were excited about Andrew Gillum, even with all of his flaws four years earlier, they didn't want a centrist. They wanted a guy who wanted to give voting rights to felons. They wanted a guy who was against stand your ground. You know, they wanted a guy who was expanding education. And instead, you know, this is what the DNC gave them. They gave them Charlie Crist. They needed somebody who could get the base to show up. It wasn't about shooting for the middle ground here. Even without that the was spending. a losing they strategy. Could have, they could have not put any more money into that race. But if they had put forward a candidate, maybe a young candidate that was totally untested, you know, somebody who didn't, you know, whatever, like give them some national profile by putting them in a governor's race. And no, they didn't do that either. <laughs> if, if this I mean, guy, what do I know? What guy... do I know about running candidates? But I do know that what the, that these, these ridiculous Democrat strategies have been doing terribly for a decade now. And if not longer. 
The article continues on spending. Hold on, yeah. So back to this article. Republicans vastly outspent Democrats by at least $250 million based on an analysis by investigative reporter Jason Garcia of Seeking Rents. Friends of Ron DeSantis, friends, <laughs> the Republican Party of Florida and the House of Senate campaign, House and Senate campaign committees spent a combined $297 million compared to $45 million spent by the political campaign committees of Charlie Crist and the Florida Democratic Party. 297 to 45. <laughs> I don't think that spending more money would have gotten Chris elected. You know, that, that wasn't no. the issue. It was how much money they spent. They just, they had a dud for a candidate. They did not even make an effort. They, 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 they dug him up and ran him as a weekend at Bernie's candidate. Mm -hmm. If, if he was a band, he would be playing half filled tours at casinos with his greatest hits. See, from the you've 80s made those jokes point. before, but have you ever been to a casino show? They're not half filled. And those are, it's like a hundred dollars a ticket to get into those things. Those guys are doing fine. <laughs> fine. Like the, the, the cure is coming to Albuquerque to play at a casino and they are a hundred dollars a ticket. <laughs> All right. Well, I will come up with a new colloquialism. Well, it, just had, it, it doesn't have to be new. It just has to be accurate. <laughs> DeSantis has played up his role as governor in shaping national policy around top culture war issues and headlines. He calls Florida a blueprint. He's either picking a new battle or he's getting out in front of one by passing legislation first. The ecosystem of political leaders getting attention with the next ban and Tucker Carlson or some other reactionary media head creates a story for everyone to tell. They're feeding off of each other to get the next headline, to get the attention that they need to serve their ends. Tucker gets ratings, Ron gets votes, and transgender people lose rights. I don't think DeSantis 2024 would exist without the culture war issues. I don't think there's any way he could have done it because he that's how he made his mark. And the culture wars wouldn't necessarily exist, at least as they are, without DeSantis running in the first place. Obviously, he's not the only person at work in this area, but this sort of will he, won't he kind of like presidential thing that he's doing has added so much attention to him and the issues that he keeps promoting. So I don't think we, it's, it's hard to yeah. separate this kind of, you know, sort of maybe a presidential campaign from the issues that he's attacking. Right now he's on tour and he's supposedly promoting his book, but the places that he's touring map up pretty fucking well with how you would do a tour for a presidential bid. Oh, you, you don't go on pre on book tours to Iowa? <laughs> <laughs> Again, this is a strategy cooked up in, you know, in, in a back room with of DeSantis's staff. They thought, how can we go and do some campaigning without it being called campaigning? We'll do a book tour. Yeah. Hey, Ron, uh, can you write something about a long meandering story where you were in Little League? <laughs> <laughs>
Great. It's perfect. No notes. <laughs> These culture wars exploit volatile symbols of underlying anxiety over broader social ills, often com conflating apparent examples of the thing in question with causes of the thing in question, interchangeably. So when conservative pundits and politicians are talking about drag queens, they're not talking about drag queens. They're using drag queens as the symbol that is indicating whatever broader thing they're trying to address or solve. And as a symptom... You're being so generous to assume that any conservative politicians are trying to solve anything. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, a very generous term. They, they take that and it's like a talking point, like communism or wokeism or something like that. And this term starts to blur between being a symptom of the thing and causing the thing. So now all of a sudden, drag queens are no longer a symptom of LGBTQ people getting rights and that's going to be terrible for America and it frightens the conservatives and the reactionaries. All of a sudden, the drag queens themselves are one of the causes. So it gets into this murky water where once it's released, it gains traction with their audience. A new symptom is elevated to the role of a cause and it becomes something else then we're on to the next news cycle meanwhile real people are being attacked real people are exposed to violence and laws and other things that have real consequences so that tucker carlson can get a few more points in his ratings and ron DeSantis can not quite run for president maybe sometime in the future. Just last week, a bunch of kids were killed in a, in a school in Tennessee. Those kids died so that a group of Republican politicians could score some points with their base by supporting unquestionably every a very, very specific reading of the Second Amendment. That was the whole that's Meanwhile, the whole thing. They know they know their crazy base loves Second Amendment rights. They know that that they can get a lot of traction under this stuff. So they pass, they, they <clears throat> constantly uh, fight against any sort of firearms restrictions, any, anything, permits, not even specific class description, like any, not even specific weapons class restrictions. They fight against permits. They fight against background checks. They fight against every single aspect of this as somehow an infringement on constitutionality. It is a very specific reading that is incredibly popular with their base. And as a result of it, kids died. So th th in a real way, those kids were sacrificed so that those Republican politicians could score points. Meanwhile, they're using it as a narrative to focus on the gender of the person, as if that has anything that's just to do fucking with bonus anything. man that, that that is really that's just like <laughs> lightning round shit like and he and 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 the shooter was who you know and you could just see the glee in everybody's in everybody's eyes i'm sure you know the when when marjorie taylor green shows up and she's harassing the atf and trying to get political on camera with this guy who's really just trying to secure the scene working for the atf who obviously is not going to comment about any of those things. And the first thing she mentions is, again, 
You know, it's 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 going to be hormone ther- therapy. I like. I, well, I just wonder if hormone therapy played a part in this shooting. If we were to point out what percentage of shooters are white and cisgendered male, uh, it's racist. It's racist to do that. Well, talk about blaming hormones, though. I mean, come on. I mean, it's you, part of gender ideology at, to do that. You, you look at the the statistics on who does the most shooting, and yeah, male hormones probably do play a part <laughs> because. Specifically, white males' hormones. Let's get to Trump and DeSantis. I've got to say, as every week rolls on, I am less likely to believe DeSantis is even going to run for president. And now he's floated the balloon. The assumption was that Trump's numbers would have cratered post the midterm performance, let alone all of the other scandals and the want to reheat. You guessed it uh, exactly right, or dare I say you picked it exactly right, was that Trump voters aren't going anywhere. He remains the gorilla with 45%. DeSantis barely cracks that in many different polls. But you also made an interesting comment yesterday, which was uh, DeSantis is out there flogging a book, getting himself out there. He's been interviewed on Fox about 8,000 times. He's done lots of radio shows. He spoke to our mate Piers Morgan. We hear that interview here on Sky News. But uh, he won't talk to you. Why? Good question. Um, I find it very interesting. And, you know, I said this on my show yesterday. With all due respect to DeSantis, I think he's afraid. <laughs> She's so upset. <laughs> so that was, a, that was an Australian host named Paul Murray talking to Megyn Kelly. Every time I see... Every time I uh, I hear Megyn Kelly talk or I see her, I'm reminded of the time that she interviewed Alex Jones. And then and then after the interview, he 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 went on his own show and he told everybody how she smelled like a demon. <laughs> what does a demon smell like? Potpourri. And he said, I don't I don't know why people are attracted to her. I, I, I just see a demon. <laughs> <laughs> But the, you know, what what he said in the beginning there is at this point, like, is he even going to run? What is he doing? Is this, is this just, I don't know what this is. Is he just auditioning for vice president? Is that what's going on? I have no idea what he's doing. (laughs) He's been asked by political opponents in, in debates point blank. Well, are you, are you actually going to run? The media keeps asking him. He meanwhile is a a woman in Victorian English, England, who's bashful at uh, at the tree that that uh, an older gentleman is hitting on her. Oh man, you're dying, man! I, that was a, that was just a clusterfuck. <laughs> I had it in my head what I wanted to say, and then the I don't words, think you did though. I don't think you did have it in your head, or else you would have said I had, it. <laughs> I had I I had an image in my head. <sighs> And then it and and then I couldn't put it into words. Never mind. Too clever by half again. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine him as this bashful Victorian era woman being hit on. Are you by really trying a, this a again? Genteel man. Oh my gosh! All right. How about how about the just a Victorian woman who sees a branch that looks like a penis? <laughs> He might Meanwhile, even... he's like Jules when he tries to come up with a pithy saying on the fly. That's why I stick to tired old idioms. They're reliable. They're consistent. Originality is overrated. <laughs> yeah. If he does want to run, he does have to make a call. He can't be the governor and run for office. So you were telling me about this article that, you know, that 
and you don't hear a lot of people talking about this, but it's possibly against the Florida State Constitution for him to run in the first place right now. Yeah, it it requires that the potential candidate, if they announce that they're that they're running for another office while they hold a current elected office, that they have to resign in order to officially run. That's part of him not announcing. And I guess it's not the Constitution, it's just a statute. It's a statute in Florida that has that has gone back and forth over the years where it's been amended and then gotten away with and then brought back and so forth. So the one of the things that we're going to have that we'll we can look out for if DeSantis actually is going to seriously run in 2024 for president is he's either he he might resign from office or more more likely he's going to use the Republican controlled House and Senate in Florida to change this statute. He's they're already talking about it. So he can't even announce it yet when this statute's in place though. I believe that is correct. This though the way that it's worded is really really murky, but that's that is effectively the case. Is that if he is going to announce, he does have to in Florida resign. So far, unless they so cha- unless they change it. You know, but since the <laughs> like like you were saying about the you know, you were saying earlier about there not being any sort of a deadline to file for the presidential election, to file to enter that race. There is a hell of a deadline when it comes to actually running in that race, because if you don't get out there with as early as our election cycles are, are, are beginning now, then you just don't have enough time to get your face in front of people or your ads in front of people with if you haven't announced your run. So in this particular on top of that, in each state, they have different for requirements for when you have to register. When when Kanye announced late in the game that he was gonna he was gonna run for president in one of his manic episodes, part of his problem wasn't that for federal uh, elections reasons, it was state reasons that it was too late to register in a lot of those states. So he wouldn't be able to be placed on the ballot in those states. Yeah. Okay. If you if you remember when Kanye was doing that, it, what was that? So yeah, you can run for president, but you're not going to be on anybody's ballots if you don't if you don't register with the states. Yeah, which each have their different timelines and requirements for doing that. But that's you know back to this book tour thing. Yeah, I'm sure Ron DeSantis's team has you know knows all those deadlines. I mean, this is not going to be the surprise for them the way it was for Kanye. <laughs> yeah. But back to this book tour. He this is this is sorry how he can thread this needle and he can run for office and be the presidential candidate and get out there and go to these donor events. You know, like he famously did not show up at CPAC. And, you know, the main reason for that is that that has become basically just Trump's event. But you know where he was? He was at the the Club for Growths event in Florida, which was a donors only weekend retreat talking to a bunch of rich people. Hey, just the sort of people you might want to meet. And that same weekend, he gave a speech at the Ronald Reagan Library for a bunch of Republicans in California. So that's what he was doing during CPAC. It's not like he's not out there moving around. He is he is meeting people. He's talking to people. And behind closed doors, who knows what he's telling people? He might be telling all these people he's running for president. And he just hasn't declared it publicly yet. Well, what what's your what's your speculation, uh, Sean? Who's going to win the the? All right, I don't do ma- I don't the- do these kinds of predictions normally, but this is a fun one. 
I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to say the day we're recording on April 3rd, 2023, that DeSantis is running for vice president. (laughs) My prediction is that he's going to run for president and I'm predicting that he's going to announce that he's running on, uh, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with March. I'm going to go with March 2024. You don't think he's going to announce until next year? 12 months Ooh. from now? I don't I guess know. that is a while, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, it is a while, right. huh? Hey, it's your guess. I'm, I'm not going to second guess it. Well, now I'm second guessing it. All right. All right. <laughs> you see how easy Do he over. bends. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no conviction there. <laughs> I'm going to go with September of this year. Oh, now you're going to change it to September. So after this, you September think, of this you year. think after the summer. So that means that before that happens, we're going to see that statute change or he's resigning as governor. There's no way he's resigning as governor because it's it's way more powerful for him to run for president while he's a sitting elected official rather than a former elected official. So he has to run while he's governor. And that means they have to change that statute. I think they're going to change it. Oh, I don't I don't doubt that that they they really yeah. could. I mean, he's not going to win the election regardless, you know, but he he might end up being the vice president, though. The even really? if he does I, run I for the nomination, I, I think it could take Trump. I, I think he. Oh no he, way! There's no way. I know that there's this this view of him as the the apprentice to the master of crazy headline getting bullshit. No, no, th- th- this is. Th- th- I know I'm late to the game here. I know this has been said other places, but this this is strictly that would strictly be a jock and nerd race, and DeSantis is going to lose it. <laughs> There's no way. We do, we do not live in a country where Republicans are voting for nerds anymore. They're not doing it. I don't know when if they I don't know if they ever did, but they're not doing it. Uh okay. You don't you don't he, you he don't, he's you been don't running you know this whole time, you know, what all the all the people, you know, typically say and it doesn't make it accurate just because it's the most common thing people say about him, but that he's the moderate Trump, the Trump without the drama. The only people that like Trump without drama are the ones that are afraid of risk. And the ones that are afraid of risk are the ones with the money. So he's got that. He's probably got plenty of financing. You've got all the Mitch McConnell types, the 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 old guard That's that right. are so fucking tired of him. Those are the those are the people who like Trump without the drama. Rich people are incredibly risk averse. They do not gamble their money. That's how they got to be rich. But the people who are voting, on the other hand, they don't care. You know, they're they're, they're not <laughs> risk averse. They they voted for Trump. They still support him. When he got indicted within two days, he got like $5 million in donations. Trump holds an event and it's a crowd of Trump supporters. DeSantis holds an event and he has his supporters there, but then he's got Trump supporters that are outside protesting his event. There's no DeSantis <laughs> supporters protesting Trump. Yeah. And, it, he, and there is, never will be. Is. He will never have, because Trump doesn't have supporters, he has fans. And that's just, there's no way he loses that election. He'd have to die. Like he would, he would literally have to die while he's running for president. He'd have to have like choke on a, on a burger or take too many ephedrine or something like that. You know, like (laughs) that's the only thing that's going to take him down. Otherwise he's winning it. He's winning at least the nomination, whether he wins the presidency, who knows? I'm not going there. Yeah. And you, and you can see the math that DeSantis has to do when every time he's talking about issues specifically because Trump is a part of the news cycle 
and people want to know what he has to say about Trump. And you can see the math that he does when he's up there talking. And he has to, he has to be able to support Trump because he needs Trump's base to vote for him. So he can't go out, he can't attack him. But at the same time, he has to, to distinguish himself in some way. So he's got to attack like some, like unimportant detail. You know, he has to go after the uh, district attorney that's bringing the charges. But you're, but you're saying, you're saying how he would say it. No, he got, you heard him. He got all coquettish when, when he was making the comments about that. It's like, I don't know anything about paying off an adult film actress, but at the same time, I'm going to go after the, the, the Soros funded attorney that's bringing these unjust charges. Yeah. He's, he's just not good enough at being a bully. He can't, he can't do it. And he, and he, and he doesn't really, and it, just like we were seeing back in the in how he got out here in the front of all those news cycles in the first place with all the covid stuff he it was totally opportunistic he he saw something he he saw this momentum moving this wave that was growing and he just surfed it he didn't cause the wave he just rode on it and he can only ride it as far as it goes. Now, Trump was riding a wave too, because we were talking about the Tea Party stuff and, you know, and, and this, you know, Freedom Caucus and all these things. Trump rode that wave as well, but you can't say that the guy didn't make the wave bigger. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WetwiredPod, and be sure to join our Discord. The link will be in the episode description. I have been posting a few links in there. I know he's been using it. I've been I've been really trying, uh, and a lot of people are gonna like it. It's gonna be very good, very nice. And if you'd like to get access to some premium episodes and help us keep this show ad free and independent for five dollars a month, you can support us on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com forward slash wetwired. If you love this episode or you hated this episode and you have a brilliant idea of how we could be doing this better give us your ideas you don't want to open that door we don't no no notes we don't want any notes but if you do have an idea (laughs) for a topic we will entertain ideas for topics (laughs) yes we absolutely will we'll put it on the running list until next time everybody see you later Republican presidential hopefuls are swarming Iowa nearly 11 months before the nominating caucus. It's still, of course, very early, but there's only two candidates that are polling in double digits. Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And while only one of them is currently facing the possibility of indictment, there are some new worries about the other one. The Daily Beast reports that, quote, the governor's aversion to pressing the flesh and his concern over the risk of unexpected interactions with the public is already so well known that early primary state players are working to DeSantis-proof their events. All the chatter is stirring old concerns about old stories about new and new concerns about the governor's social skills. One act staffer saying, quote, he would sit in meetings and eat in front of people, always like a starving animal who has never eaten before, getting stuff everywhere. According to two sources familiar with the incident during a private plane flight four years ago, DeSantis enjoyed a chocolate pudding dessert by eating it with three of his fingers. (laughs) 